Let me begin by um, just talking about my exercise uh, regime in my life. I worked out that um, I've, I've been doing exercise now regularly for four years, which makes it 10% of my life. And if I add those really good years in uh, between grade six and year 10 when I played hockey, that adds another few more years. Um, but so it's probably getting up to close to a fifth of my life when I've done exercise. But there's a good 1992 to 2012 where I did nothing, right? It's 20 years. Um, and through that period, I had a whole series of false starts. I remember in 2010, this one time, um, it was on the day of the 21st birthday I had to go to in the evening, but I thought, it was a Saturday afternoon, I'm going to start a swimming regime. It just popped into my head. So I remember going to the Richmond pool, and I, I think I pulled out 15 or 20 laps. But at the end of it, I stood up to get out of the pool, and I almost fell over. And my head was spinning, and I actually got changed and got into the car, and somehow I drove home, but I don't know how I didn't crash. And what I worked out was that I was completely dehydrated, that, that I didn't drink any water, and that you sweat in the pool, and because I'm a rookie, I didn't know these things. So, um, you know, next time I tried, it was a bit better, I drank water, and I didn't pass out. Uh, you need to be told how to do these things. You need to have help. You need to have help. In a similar way, I, I learned as a music teacher that the, one of the things that makes a difference between um, a student that progresses and really makes a difference and really grows into a great player and one who doesn't is, is to do is how, often how they practice. It's not necessarily that they're being given this amazing gift. It's actually a lot to do with how they practice because a, a lot of students actually practice mistakes. They practice the wrong thing. They just want to go straight into playing the pieces and uh, the good players or that start early on, they work how they've got to work on technique and learning how to play before they can jump into the pieces. Um, you need to be told. You know, good teachers will, will work that out. Now, in the, living the Christian life is similar to these two examples, where, in a sense, it is hard to live the Christian life to last the whole of your life and get to the end of your life and still be a Christian. It's tough and you need help. It does require a lot of commitment, and you're going to be tempted to look for shortcuts along the way. When it gets tough, you'll feel like giving up. But as Hebrews 4 verse 11 says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You must persevere to the end. One famous preacher once said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. That's good, isn't it? You can persevere to the end, but you can only do it with God's help. In our two verses from Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 today, we see that while we must persevere, God doesn't leave us on our own, but gives us his living and active word to help us along the way. Just as I needed to drink water to properly do the laps and not pass out from dehydration, just as I needed to learn how to practice my scales before I jumped into playing the sonatas and the concertos, so too do we need help to live the Christian life. And one of the ways God does that is with his living and active word. So how does this work? There's two ideas from these two verses, one from each verse. The first idea is that the word of God, it will resist our disobedience. And the second idea is the word of God will reverse our duplicity. We'll get to that later. So you need the word of God because it will resist your disobedience. 
So already the argument that's been presented in Hebrews so far at this point, especially in chapter 4, is that there's a parallel between the Christian life and the, the journey of the Israelites in the Exodus. In the same way that the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt and went through the promised land, uh, through, sorry, the, through the desert towards the promised land and got to the promised land. When they got there, they were disobedient. They didn't trust God. They didn't go in. And so a whole generation passed away. God would not let that whole generation in. So 38 years go by, a total of 40 years travelling before they could enter Canaan, the promised land. The parallel is with the Christian life. Book of Hebrews says, don't be like them. Don't disobey God. Don't um, not trust God or else you won't enter his Sabbath rest. We're not talking about the promised land now, Canaan. We're talking about something even better. God's Sabbath rest, which is his salvation, which you can enter in now by becoming a Christian and handing over your burdens to Jesus and you enter it into it when you die and in, into eternity when Jesus returns. The writer of the Hebrews warns that it's, it's a, it's, it's, there's a chance you might not enter because of disobedience, that your heart will become hardened. But in verse 12, it shows us this, that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, which is saying that God's word will help us to enter the Sabbath rest by resisting our disobedient hearts. Let's unpack what this means. See, the word of God has an effect. The tr- this is the truth of God we're talking about, which, yes, we can read about it in the Old Testament and then the New Testament. The writer of the Hebrews isn't necessarily talking about the New Testament because it hasn't been written yet, but we can safely include that as the God, word of God. It is powerful, it is living and active, and it has an effect on people. But it's not the same effect on everyone. For those who have received Christ into their lives, who said yes to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has transformed their hearts, the word of God penetrates into their hearts, it humbles them, and it challenges them, it gives them a true knowledge of themselves, and it causes them to run towards the grace of the Lord Jesus. There's a concept in music and acoustics called sympathetic resonance, or sometimes called sympathetic vibrations which is this harmonic phenomenon that occurs where, uh, let's just use the strings of a guitar, for example. Um, If you pluck one string, just one string on a guitar, some of the other strings will start to vibrate because of um, the vibrations which are in harmonic relationship. So you can do the physics of it to work it out, but you'll... If you play the low E string, the top E string will ring just a little bit, okay? There's a resonance that, it, that occurs. The classic example, if you do it in the physics lab, is when you get a tuning fork, and you get two tuning forks, and you ring one, the other one will start ringing. This is what happens with Christians when the Word of God um, speaks into their life. The Word of God is communicated, and the Christian's heart resonates in sympathy. It's like there's a big yes that is spoken into your heart. And you might have had that experience. You might have been sitting in church or in a Bible study or just reading the Bible or listening to something on the radio maybe even. And God's word is spoken and you just your heart sings. That's the sympathetic vibrations of your heart in tune with the living and active word. But for non-believers, it has a different effect. 
For those who have not been transformed by the Lord Jesus, for those who the Holy, for whom the Holy Spirit has not come into their life yet, the word, word bounces off like a sledgehammer hitting one of those big cast iron you know, things that they used to make horseshoes on. The anvil, I think they're called. Um, it it just, just ricochets off. But see, even though this happens, there is still a general truth about the word of God for those people who are not yet believers. That though they reject it, though they might have a hard heart towards God, even though they might be unwilling to face God or even consider God's reality, the, the truth of God still applies to them. The word of God still applies to them. God's holiness, his demands for obedience still work for them. So the person who rejects God's word, and, and even though it might appear that it's having no effect, nevertheless in reality stand condemned before it. So it doesn't matter who you are, God's word drags us all into his courtroom and, and it declares all people guilty and in need of forgiveness. One writer said it this way, If anyone thinks that the air is beaten by an empty sound when the word of God is preached, he is greatly mistaken, for it is a living thing and full of hidden power, which leaves nothing in man untouched. So if you want to start to understand how God's word resists disobedience, this is it. God doesn't just leave us completely oblivious to our sin. We read the Bible, we hear it taught, we discuss the Bible, and we realise that sin is not acceptable to God. So, for example, for the Christian who is playing in the muck of sexual sin, perhaps they're having an affair. This happens in churches. Um, Perhaps they are engaging in sex outside of marriage. Perhaps they have a secret fantasy life fueled by pornography. They usually know that God is displeased. The word of God rings in their hearts like a rumbling gong. Like an alarm that says, what are you doing? Stop. But hang on, you might be thinking. You don't always know, don't you? Like, how many people can you think of, including yourself, who at times in your life have gone down the rabbit hole of sin and the whole time you've ignored God, not actually feeling bad or even thinking much about it? This is true. We are experts at suppressing sin. We're we're experts at suppressing what we know to be true. But the effects of sin are such that it can mess us up greatly. It can harden our hearts. It can push down the light of God. Our heart is like, it can be like a labyrinth where there are hidden corners and corridors and rooms and, and we're really good at just pushing the sin and God's truth down into those hidden rooms so we don't have to think about it. So for a while, the knowledge of the beauty of God isn't even, we're not even aware of it. Freud might call this denial. (laughs) But when our confused and corrupted hearts come into contact with God's word, his living and active word, it acts like a sharp surgical tool. Um, I put on a samurai on the front there. It's not, it's not a surgeon, but I, I had a look at some pictures of surgery and I thought, don't put that on the front cover. I looked up heart surgery and I was like, freak out. 
Um, so I put a samurai instead. It's kind of fun. Double-edged sword. God's word acts like a surgical tool. Opening our hearts, bringing to light our sins, drawing to the surface what we know to be true about God. It's sharper than any double-edged swords. Most swords have a blunt side and a sharp side, but we're talking about a sword with sharpness on both sides, so it's extra, extra powerful. It penetrates to even dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. And there's no difference in the writer's mind between soul and spirit. Not to, we're not to make a big thing about this, not to form a whole theology. Oh, we must have a soul and we must have a spirit. It's just a turn of phrase to mean the same thing. In other words, God's um, word can dissect everything that we are. There's nothing so hard and so strong in us, nothing so hidden that this powerful word cannot uncover. And God's word has this effect of being self-fulfilling. So there's a great um, verse in Isaiah 55, 11. So is my word uh, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It rushes off to fulfill the purpose for which it is being spoken. Um, like, you know, a pigeon that as soon as you let, let it out of its cage, a homing pigeon, it flies out and delivers the message. So for us, if you're um, a person that wants help in your Christian faith, you need the, the, the Word of God in your life. Now, you might probably think, oh, I do have the Word of God in my life. I read the Bible occasionally and I come to church and hear a sermon. But I think because of, because of our, um, per, our professionalism at dodging the Word of God or at put, suppressing it into the labyrinth of our hearts, we need um, a really good doctor. We need a really good surgeon to work with the Word of God. So what I mean, what I'm doing there, I'm making up um, metaphors upon metaphors upon metaphors. But um, I'm sort of suggesting that maybe you need people to speak into your life with the Word of God. Maybe you need um, a mentor or a spiritual director, or maybe a, you know, be involved in a kind of a, an intimate prayer triplet or something where people are just going to speak to you the reality of your life with the Word of God. Because when somebody speaks God's word to you personally about what you're doing in your life, then it's harder to kind of, you know, suppress what you know to be true. If you want to be helped in resisting disobedience so you can live the Christian life and enter into God's Sabbath rest, I recommend you find someone to be a mentor, you find someone to pray with regularly, you can be honest with, and you open yourself up, you be vulnerable. See, in our middle class... um, culture. We don't want to confront each other. We always say, I don't want to judge. I don't want to be a judge. Um, but actually what we're doing is protecting ourselves when we, we're not challenging each other. We're, you know, we're trying to make sure that we don't lose the friendship. But sometimes we just should speak God's truth to each other. And this can be done in a loving and gracious way. So our community groups, therefore, should not just be clubs where you might do a little Bible study and prayer, but they should also be places where we do um, full-on heart surgery on each other, where we have a triple bypass or, um, you know, to complete, put in a, a new valve or something. They should be cardiac wards. So what are we saying? We're saying God's word, word helps us enter God's Sabbath rest because it helps us in our, di- our disobedience. It exposes our sin. 
It untangles our confused hearts. It brings to light the truth. And because of that, it has a second effect, which is what the other verse talks about, which is that God's word will reverse our duplicity. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to who we must give account. So we can't go on living in the shadows. It's all just comes out in the open. That's what the word of God does. It pulls it out like you're pulling the net out of the water. You know that. So what do we mean by duplicitous? Um, one of the effects of sin is it causes us to live a double life, and that's where you get the word duplicity from. Um, it means deceitful. It means having living two lives. It comes from the Latin duplex, twofold or double. The duplicitiness of our nature is evident in the widespread um, ways that different people will put on masks at church. You'll do it yourself, I do it. We kind of don't want anyone to know this is what we're really like. And sometimes we put on really big masks and sometimes they're just little masks. We don't want anyone to know what we're really like. Nobody is 100% transparent. We all have thoughts, memories, actions and desires that we keep hidden from public view. We all walk around with some kind of masks on covering up certain aspects of our lives, stuff that we're embarrassed about. There's no person where if you were to meet or observe them that you would see everything. And maybe that's appropriate. Maybe we'd freak out. I don't know. <laughs> Adam and Eve, I mean, this is a, the opening story of the Bible is about this, isn't it? Um, they start off in this complete transparency, isn't it? Nude. Um, and, they, and they're just like, I don't even notice because there's no shame in this world where there's no sin. And they look at each other and they look at God and they, they just live their life. But as soon as sin enters the world, duplicity enters the world. What do they do? Oh, they get some fig leaves and they try and cover up their shame. Ah, oh, what are you saying, God? Oh, um, you know, there's nothing wrong. Um, start blaming each other. But you can't hide from God. That's what this verse is saying. Verse 13. You can't hide from them. How stupid do Adam and Eve think they are? What are they doing? And being duplicitous is a good way to lose your faith because what happens is you, if you're really in the muck of your sin and if you're really suppressing your sin down into the labyrinth of your heart, what happens is, and you're a Christian, you get what's called cognitive dissonance, right? Here's a more Freudian stuff. So you, you end up coming to church, pretending you're a Christian, singing the songs... And in reality, you know you're living another way. And so that comes in a clash into your head. And it can't last forever. And eventually, one gives way to the other. And the word of God is pulling your godly nature forward and saying, just expose the truth. But the other sinful nature is saying, no, suppress the truth. Don't tell anyone. Walk away from your faith. Your faith is just causing you problems. And this, the dissonance is at war in our heads. God doesn't want us to be duplicitous. God doesn't want us to live double lives. He wants to make us whole again. God's word is actually a discerner. He discerns what is right and what is wrong. He helps you to live in the truth. Uh, Calvin wrote, There is indeed no thicker darkness than that of unbelief and hypocrisy. And, and hypocrisy is a horrible blindness. But God's word scatters this darkness and chases away this hypocrisy. So God's word probes the inmost recess of 
recesses of our spiritual being and brings our subconscious to light. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Paul says that the Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. So you can hide your sins from your friends, but you can't hide your sins from God. Why go on living a lie to your friends? God knows the truth. Don't you want to be free and be a whole person and, and just be living your life without feeling like you're a fraud? Everything lies before him, exposed and powerless. And one day Jesus will return. We will have to give an account for how we lived our lives. That's what it says in verse 13. And you can't say, if you, you, know, you can't say, yes, I lived a sinful life, but I didn't know. Sorry, God. Especially if you're a Christian now, if you've been part of a Christian community, you can't say that. Jesus will say, but you had the word of God and you suppressed it or you deflected it or you ignored it or you pretended it wasn't there. You had the Holy Spirit working on your life. You can't just ignore it. Stripped of all disguise and protection, we are utterly at the mercy of God, the judge of all. So we need to make every effort. And entering God's Sabbath rest means resting from the struggle and the confusion of living this double life. So why not hand your life over to Jesus? Stop fighting. Allow God's word to transform your heart. Don't try and enter God's Sabbath rest on your own. Don't do it without, you know, like me with my, without my water bottle. You just become dehydrated. Allow God's word to resist your duplicity, to reverse it. Let's finish by reminding you of the great um, quote from Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and philosopher. And he said, Humanity is the glory and the garbage of the universe. But Jesus came to transform us from this double nature of glory and garbage into the single nature of glory. So this morning, why don't you embrace this new and better life? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we can be people of the word um, and that you can do heart surgery on us. And we pray that if we're living a double life, if we're suppressing the sin, that you can help us to draw out the impurities and to live in obedience with your help. Amen.